Welcome to Market Scale Retail. I'm your host, Sean Heath. Today, I have the opportunity to have a conversation with Luciano Pesci. He is the CEO at Imperatus and also a professor of economics. Luciano, how are you today? Great. Thanks for having me back on the podcast. Uh, do me a favor. Would you give me the elevator pitch of sort of your journey through the world of economics and specifically how your focus was drawn to cryptocurrency? Sure. I've always been fascinated by technology and social institutions. That's why I got drawn into economics to begin with. And at the University of Utah, I created an applied research and analytics course that then brought me into the field of data science. And then from data science, we got into blockchain and from blockchain where we were looking at crypto. And so I come at crypto both as a technologist. I, I consider myself a futurist. I do a lot of technology hunting all the time. But I also come at this with the background of a PhD economist and so, and one that has differing views, I think, than most economists when it comes to crypto. Okay, so I want to I wanna go back way, way back old school uh, because sure. it seems like you are perfectly uh, prepared to help me understand this. Let's go back to the initial concept of exchange for goods or services. Originally, it was bartering. Then that, of course, evolves into the concept of currency. Yeah, well, you have to remember that exchange is just two people usually agreeing to something. And so they can, it be, can be an exchange of an idea. It can be an exchange of a commodity. And for most of human history, exchange was facilitated by commodities. But in economics, that produces something called the double coincidence of wants. You have to have exactly what I want, and I have to have exactly what you want for us to be able to trade. We might be willing to trade, but if you don't have what I want or need, we're just not going to be able to do it. And so commodities serve that function for a very long time and still do. People still do exchange in commodities. And then you saw the rise of mostly coined money. And there was a little bit of paper money in China about 2,000 years ago, but it disappeared. It really wasn't again until the American colonial period where paper notes and then currency took off, not just in the United States, but across the whole world as a way to facilitate exchange that was starting to happen internationally at a high volume. Because a standard commodity currency was created that could be different things to different people at any point in time. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting about fiat money, and so in the crypto world, you will hear the term fiat, and they mean government-issued paper currency. And that government-issued paper currency is backed by the trust of a very large single individual entity, which is the government that issues it. And if you look around the world, there are some governments that just use the US dollar because it's easier than creating their own money supply. Um, the United States has created a historically very stable currency, especially in the last 100 years, still prone to inflation, but we don't really see deflation. It's relatively stable and everyone's willing to accept it. And so that facilitates exchange. Now it doesn't matter what you and I have. We trade this intermediary that you know is going to fulfill three things. And this is the benchmark for all money in economics. It has to be a unit of measure. So it has to be clear. That's why it's denominated in dollars, $1, $2. It's a base 10 system. That's the first thing, a unit of measure. Uh, the second is that it has to be a medium of exchange. People have to actually want to exchange it. So we can have a measurement in that dollar, but if you don't care about it and you don't want it, then we won't be able to exchange it. And then the third part is it has to be a store of wealth. And this gets to what you just said. So if you and I trade beaver pelts, I don't know what the life product life cycle is on a beaver pelt, but I'm sure that after about a hundred years, it's gone. 
if I put that money into crypto right now, assuming that the whole grid doesn't go down, the whole system doesn't go down, that wealth would still be there. And that's true of gold. That's why people hoard gold and silver, even some dollars. And one of the things that's interesting about coin money or paper money is that over time, it actually becomes less useful in most of those functions. People aren't going to accept some of these notes from 100 years ago, not understanding what they are, even though it might have more value now because it's rare. And so then they become stores of wealth exclusively. And right now, crypto has that reverse problem where everyone's looking at it as a store of wealth and specifically as investment. And so the original vision of blockchain-based tokenization, which was the Bitcoin white paper, was the idea that it was a peer-to-peer. It was money. It was going to become that digital intermediary to facilitate exchange all over the world. All right. So there's an interesting thought that just popped into my head, and that is there's a degree of fidelity or trust that is necessary for the concept of currency to be viable. And for example, with the American dollar, it's the gold standard. Unless gold ceases to exist in a flash catastrophic event, there is something that backs up the theoretical value of the US dollar. With cryptocurrency, its entire existence is based on the assumption that electricity will continue to exist and be manufactured and used and that computer networks will continue to function. So that there's a degree of fear that comes along with cryptocurrency, which is natural. It's, it's totally logical. But do me a favor, as someone who understands, as you do, the flux of economy, give me some peace of mind in this new paradigm shift or this possible seismic shift in financial progress around the world in the cryptocurrency space. Put my mind at ease if that's even possible. Well, let me me back up and address something you said, though. There isn't a, there is not a uh, nation on the planet that currently backs its currency with gold completely anymore. The U.S. severed that in 1971. It had to. It abandoned the gold standard. So this idea of being pegged to things or being collateralized, it's not actually collateralized in gold. Now, there was a time where the government held gold. It's backed totally by reputation. It is a system of trust exclusively. And so this is what is so, is, what is so interesting about crypto is it fundamentally transforms the nature of trust. You no longer have to have that single monolithic uh, central entity who you trust and nobody else can, be, can do it. The one person, the government, the only people capable of issuing currency. And again, you go back 250 years in the United States and people are personally issuing currency. They're just writing it out on paper. They've got, you know, elaborate designs. It says to counterfeit is death on them. They're threatening you with death if you copy it. And people are accepting those for large transactions because they trust the person who they believe created it. And fiat money has the ability to be copied. And this is why it's so hard, actually to keep a paper currency in circulation. You have nations like North Korea who produce things like super dollars that, are, that just continue to stay in the market, in the money supply. It's about 1.6% of the money supply is counterfeit money. And paper money has that issue. The fiat has that issue. Crypto changes that. You can steal crypto, but you really can't fake crypto. And this is because of the underlying blockchain technology. It's a distributed decentralized ledger. And there's a way to look back to every single thing that's happened in a very transparent way. 
and no one entity can control it. And that's just one form, by the way. There's many different versions of blockchain. That's the other thing you said about uh, electricity, for example. So there are other cryptocurrencies that are trying to devise ways to do this kind of distributed, decentralized ledger approach that don't require the kind of electricity of Bitcoin mining. And there's actually three things that have to go into any cryptocurrency for it to really function as money, to be what in the crypto space is called a stable coin. So a stable coin is just like a dollar. You want it to always have the same unit of measure, store of wealth, and be a medium of exchange. But that'll only happen if it's stable. If you've been looking at Bitcoin over the last year, it's not been so stable. $2,000 this time last year. It's over $6,000 today. It was up almost to $20,000 six months ago. And that kind of market volatility means that to use Bitcoin as a currency has a lot of risk because one day your money could be worth more, the next day your money could be gone. But it also has to be cost effective to create this system. And this is Bitcoin's Achilles heel. And it's made tons of news about just how big this network is and how hard it is to continue to maintain. And that translates into transaction speeds with the Bitcoin ledger. That's one of the issues with retail that we can get into is that you know, you don't want to have to stand there for 60 minutes with a customer to figure out whether or not the transaction actually went through. And there are other cryptos that have emerged that have solved that problem technologically. And so they're more cost effective. And then the third part to be a stable coin is they have to be transparent about the stability of its system and its outer bounds. And I think this is where the, the coin haven from Australia, I think they're a leader in this space right now when it comes to this idea of creating fulfilling the original vision of Bitcoin, which was to be that peer-to-peer money alternative to paper fiat from government. You know, it's unfortunate. Um, my grandfather always used to say, nobody ever says that the mouse stole the cheese. They always say the mice got the cheese. You know, we have a tendency to paint with a very broad brush. And so when Bitcoin is going through this fluctuation, it reflects negatively to the layman on the concept of cryptocurrency. But cryptocurrency, as you mentioned, is achieving a a degree of stability that makes it a viable option for storefront retail. Talk to me a little bit about some of the challenges that retailers face in accepting cryptocurrency. Okay. So... Just for clarification, because I know that this conversation can get muddled with people who are new to this space, blockchain and crypto are technically two different things. Crypto is just a tokenized, a tokenization of a blockchain. And you can use blockchain in many other ways. And so I just want to make that clear right here at the beginning, because I think we're going to go down a deep path just on crypto. And there are actually probably more applications for blockchain and retail than crypto itself, because crypto is just for the payments. But the blockchain idea of that, of the traceable ledger, that gets to things like proof of provenance. It gets to things like supply chain validation. It, it, it can be used for all kinds of inventory systems, for the reward systems that they may be offering to customers. We can get into some of these details about how it would work on the payment side as well. But there are many applications for blockchain in retail outside of cryptocurrency. With that said, the real... Um, the real opportunity, I mean, let's back up and let me address one other thing you said about the, the layman's interpretation or perceptions. I'm sorry that you said the layman's perceptions of cryptocurrency and price fluctuation definitely doesn't help. 
but it's it's also been much more stable over the last few months than it was six months ago. And the underlying technology has real value. So I said this last time I was on the podcast, this is not tulips. That comparison that Bitcoin is somehow tulips, it's really not tulips. That comparison is not really valid because the underlying technology of cryptocurrency, of which Bitcoin is one form, has immense value that will transform the world. Tulips couldn't do that. Now, the limitation with retail, and it's interesting because uh, there was just a survey that uh, a third party did. It was a small sample, so people should go dig into this. It was 100 retailers who use Square at their storefront retail. And they were asked if they would like to be able to accept cryptocurrency. And 60% of retail customers said that they would, uh, of these retail customers of, of Square, not customers at retail. So 60% of Square's retail customers surveyed said that they would accept Bitcoin if it was possible. And then on the other side of the market, you've got about 20 to 30% and it's rising of the public who are saying they would consider using or would use something like a cryptocurrency in a retail transaction. So it seems like on both sides of the market, there is interest, but retail lives and dies on the rails that Visa, MasterCard, Amex, and Discover Card have laid out for them. It is almost impossible to do business just strictly in cash today. And so that dependency on payments means that this is where crypto comes in as an alternative to that traditional payments. That's really where retail is going to have its first major friction point. It is not easy to break into the payment space. So the fact that Square just recently announced that if you and I have a Square Cash app, we can, we can exchange cryptocurrency on it. Well, it's trivial then for that to be rolled out to the rest of their hardware that's in retail. They're very good at doing that. And if you remember when the chips came out and they had to redo all the machines, Square has proven to be very quick and adaptive. It would be trivial for them to roll this out. There are some government barriers in place, so they had to get a bit license in New York, which they just did. And it pushed the, the announcement of that pushed Square stock to its highest price ever, even though Square is almost a $20 billion company. They've made less than a quarter of a million dollars to date on, uh, on the Bitcoin, on the exchange of the Bitcoin through their app in a limited test fashion. And they're only 3% of the payments market. So it's great. It's encouraging that Square is trying to do this, but it's going to take a major player to make the to transform the technological barrier that exists right now between customers at retail who are willing to use crypto and retailers who are willing to accept crypto, but they don't really have a good system in place. And if you want to see how costly this can be, Discover Card is number four here in the list that I gave you, and that was laid out by size. In the early to mid 80s, they made the, the Sears made the decision to create their own card, which is where Discover came from. They suffered $500 million of losses in the first three years of operation. That's $1.25 billion today in today's dollars. And it was a customer adoption problem and a merchant adoption problem. They had to go out there and market to people and tell them, you want to use a Discover card. They had to go to the merchants and say, here's a different way to accept payments than Visa, MasterCard, and Amex. And that's what most of that money was spent on just getting this broad adoption. We haven't seen that moment yet. We're very early in crypto's product lifecycle, the very earliest moments. When a big player jumps in, it will change fundamentally because Discover Card was just another credit card. Crypto does a lot of things that these traditional payment systems can't do. 
All right. So two points just to touch on briefly. One is you mentioned that the push that had to take place to force the adoption or to popularize the concept of the adoption of the Discover card. Let's take into account now that social media is a completely new communication paradigm. It's It feels as if the, uh, what's the word, promoting blockchain-based technologies would be much more pervasive and easier now than, say, 20 years ago. Um, do you mean from the producer side of the market yes. or the consumer side of the market? From the so producer I, side, yes. So basically, these blockchain companies getting out there and spreading the gospel. Right. Yeah, it's much easier than okay. just relying on print media or on broadcast television. Well, they're, you know, they've actually proven to be digital marketing experts to the point that some of these digital marketing channels like Google and Facebook have said, uh, you can't play on our systems anymore. Because there's been a lot of ICO fraud. That's the other part of the market that has caused a lot of negative feelings. And I think this is when most economists bash crypto. They like to focus on this, which, by the way, is a little strange for economists because economists love to look at like drug markets and uh, markets for illicit goods and black markets and all these things. And, then, and they study them from a very non-moralistic, here's just how supply and demand plays out in the market and incentives and preferences. And then they get to crypto and they go, it should be banned. You have Joseph Stiglitz out there saying, it should be banned. Yeah, I always, that's, an, it's a, that's a very, um, I don't want to say shady, but that is a, that's something that definitely perks up your attention when you see um, a moralistic argument tried to be applied to what is a strictly economic um, topic. Well, and what you have to remember is economists, one of their main tools, one of their favorite playthings has been the money supply. The Federal Reserve, the Fed as an entity has immense power. And to their credit, it is why we have not seen deflation largely in the last hundred years. You just go plot the history of inflation and deflation in the United States. And it's just, it's like a sine wave up and down and up and down. And it just, boom, it just, there's no more from 1913 on deflation. They, they got that part right, but they abandoned the gold standard in 1971 when something economists said could never happen, stagflation, simultaneous rise in unemployment and inflation took off. And their models broke down completely there. So they're also not perfect. And I, I firmly believe as an economist that crypto is going to have just such a transformative, positive contribution to the future society, crypto and blockchain, both of them. And it does mean giving up control of that money supply. And I think that's where economists, this is why they react differently to crypto. And then what they do is like, even Stiglitz did this, is like, well, look, it's used to buy drugs. It's used to, to, for illicit markets. And it's okay, well, you know, 90% of uh, US currency contains trace amounts of cocaine because people are using it to snort drugs. So are we going to get rid of paper currency because it's used in illicit markets? No, and especially not if the net benefits are far outweigh any of the costs and some of those costs could be fixed. And so to look at crypto right now, my point is all those blockchain companies that want to go out there and spread that gospel are fighting an uphill battle because people that, you know, the public respects, the economist, and he's a Nobel Prize winning economist. Uh, and he's one of many people who've warned that this is a Ponzi scheme or it's some sort of pump and dump and 
Meanwhile, it looks like there is some of that going on and it might be coming from some of the biggest regular financial players in the market anyways. And they will not be able to stop the momentum of crypto. So to give you a sense, even within retail, in 2013, just Bitcoin, not other cryptocurrencies, but in 2013, about $10 million a month in retail transactions were happening with Bitcoin. Last year, it was $190 million. And it's just going to rapidly grow. And then it will, you know, start to decline. Diminishing returns will kick in like with everything else, but it will become a main staple part of the economy. It won't just be used in the, in the recesses of, of, you know, back markets, black markets, back alleys. It will be a mainstay. And this is why retailers should get ahead of this because people seem to want to use it. And there, I mean, there's other benefits for the retailers as well. The costs, the fees are much lower than interchange plus the discount rate that most retailers have to absorb because they can't pass it on to the customer. You can't tell the customer at your retail front store that there's an additional $5 because of the transaction fees. Okay, so on a $100 transaction, on average, three of that will go to those financial intermediaries, Visa, MasterCard, your bank who issues your credit or debit card. With, a, with Bitcoin, it can be as little as 60 cents for that $100 transaction. And that money goes right back into the retailer's pockets because right now, they're the one that eats that cost. It would seem they would have a, a motivation. It, it seems like it's a, a no-brainer to, to try and be a part of the development of this, the usage of this currency from the retail standpoint. Is that, is that true or, or are they so afraid of issues with regulators and their financial institutions saying, we won't deal with you? Because there have been several financial institutions that have come out and said, yeah, we, you cannot do anything that has anything to do with crypto. I know. And, and you're back to that whole, hey, well, who is it that's pushing that agenda? You go far enough back and it's always tied to federal money. Because the government doesn't want, and I, I will admit, as an economist for the first, I mean, I've known about Bitcoin since 2010. I've watched it. I've been fascinated by it. I really wish, in retrospect, I would have invested a huge amount at that time. And I didn't because I thought, as an economist, there's no way that the Federal Reserve lets a competitor emerge. And then what happened is it just exploded internationally and it was suddenly outside of the Fed's, the, the Fed's domain. And if you look right now, it's not even clear which agency in the US government regulates cryptocurrency. The SEC is doing different things than the IRS. The, the, the future commodities and exchange is doing different things than, uh, than the Federal Reserve. They have different definitions about what crypto even is. In some cases, they consider it investment. In some key, none of them consider it money, by the way. None of them. It's the only thing they can all agree upon is that's not money. But I said there's three things that money has to do. Unit of measure, store of wealth, medium of exchange. Crypto has proven a, capable of doing all of those, doing it across international lines, opening up new markets internationally, opening up new, new markets domestically by bringing unbanked and underbanked people into the economy who couldn't get anything from those financial institutions. And at the end of the day, the chokehold comes from the federal government through the, F, through the Federal Reserve and the FDIC to say at financial institutions, if you have accounts that touch any of these kinds of markets, you're done. We won't insure you. Yeah, it definitely seems like cryptocurrency is a truly democratic, small-D form of promise to pay. It seems like it's a fairly 
uh, I want to say trustworthy, that's not the right word, but that's the sense of what I'm trying to. It seems as if it could be given the right marketing and the right rollout and the introduction of simplified access for those of us who are not, you know, Wall Street denizens. It seems as if it just needs the right PR campaign because it's stable and it's useful and it's logical and it's the future, but it's just a matter of, of getting people to be able to know that and then helping them to adopt this as a, a form of payment. Yeah, because there are huge benefits. I mean, beyond the lower transaction fees, specifically the retail and this gets to the permanent nature of the blockchain, and this gets to why it's trustworthy and and because it's transparent, and it's permanent. So you can see everything that's happened, and the only way that an exchange can happen is that you and I agree to do the exchange. And once it's done, it's done. There's no going back. So chargebacks, for example, where cards are stolen, and then use it retail, and then Visa and MasterCard, American Express and Discover come knocking and say, hey, you as the retailer have to pay us because that card was, was, you know, stolen uh, or it was a f false transaction. Or sometimes it's you sold bad merchandise, they complained to us. And so we're taking that money back. That can't happen in blockchain technology. So how are, how's retail going to respond to that with things like purchase and warranty, which are, by the way, easier to track on blockchain. And then what, be, what happens to return policies? Because you have to willingly participate on both sides of the return now. And I think that that's going to change some of this and it will come down to honesty, integrity, and transparency. And that stuff, you know, you said about 20 years ago, it would have been a lot harder for the word to get out that one of these major retailers is not transparent and honest in its action. And now it happens every day. And it's to the point that these major brands are monitoring social media with special tools, special uh, social listening tools like Nuvi is a good example. Nuvi brings in all the data from social media, RSS feeds, all these places, and you can look at keywords and you can just watch and they can say, they can just see minutes after it's been posted that something bad was said about them and they can respond. That wasn't possible 20 years ago, nor did the businesses care to even pay that much attention. They have to now. So your return policy becomes maybe a competitive advantage if you're really honest and trustworthy and transparent because you will, you could just sell stuff and say, sorry, that's what it is. And you're never getting your money back. And there's no chargebacks from Visa or MasterCard coming. That gets back to the world of caveat emptor, right? The, the idea that you, the buyer better beware. You better know what you're getting into with these exchanges. And I think that's a good thing. I think we've gone too far down the road of consumers are king. And no matter what happened, they should be able to get their money back. That's not, that, that has not proven to be, that's it. I'm sorry. That has proven to be just as bad of a power imbalance as when the company says, because they're the only game in town, sorry, go away. Okay, so for the final question today, let's talk directly to the retailers because blockchain, as you mentioned, which is the backbone uh, that allows cryptocurrency to even exist, but blockchain has an awful lot of strengths. It has a lot of features that, are, are, that seem to be really secure how does that affect retailers or how do retailers approach that concept? So it's interesting because it's secured a system level. So as a system, it'd be very hard to take down something like blockchain because it's decentralized, it's distributed, the ledger's clear, there are paper versions of the ledger. 
that you can always go back and refer to. It'd be very hard to just kill it. But at the individual level, it is also very vulnerable because all it takes is access to the private key. So when you have a token on a blockchain, you're given a public key and a private key. If that private key falls into the hands of anyone else, they control whatever token, whatever that token represents, wealth, unit of measure, stock in a company. They, they have it. They can move it around and it's gone and there's no going back. You could try to say, oh, it was fraud and sue and do all these other things. It's going to come back down to control of private keys. It's, it is very vulnerable in that sense at the individual level. And so this is why wallets have emerged. And so if, if retailers wanted to get into this, it's actually not very hard. You don't have to wait on Square. You don't have to wait on Discover. You don't have to wait on any of these major payment systems. You just need an internet connection. And you can go get your own wallet. You can get your own from that wallet. You then have to worry about your public key, your private key. It's fine. You can make your public key public. You can print out a QR code that comes with it, stick it at the register, there's apps, they can scan it, they can pay you right there. They never get access to your private key, which means they can't move things out of your pocket anymore. They can just move it into your pocket. And these private keys are usually held in a wallet. And there's different kinds of wallets. There are what are called hot wallets. They're connected to the internet. And then there's cold wallets that are not connected to the internet. They might be digital still, or they might be paper, or they might be an encrypted USB device. And the, that literally controls all of the wealth tied to that private key that's, that is reserved on that blockchain for you. And so it's easy to start accepting it, but you need to be careful because that private key, once it's, if it's out there, then you can almost guarantee someone's going to use it in a transaction. Um, you can, as retailers, I would encourage you to look at something like Coinbase Commerce. That's an out-of-the-box solution that can help you get up and going. But another thing that you will have to decide as a retailer is, okay, if they pay me in Bitcoin or Ethereum or Ripple, do I hold it or not? And what I have seen, the pattern in most retail is that they do a split. So usually 60-40 or 70-30, and it comes down to their risk tolerance for volatility because if they want to split at 70-30, where 70% stays in the crypto token and they cash out immediately 30%, they convert it to whatever US dollars. You have to decide, and the best approach is a ratio that you don't change day to day to day because you, you need that longer term stability. Um, but this gets back to, you know, Bitcoin was $2,000 a year ago. It's $6,000. Now, if you had left a hundred percent of it in Bitcoin, that's a three, threefold increase. Um, but it could go down. People are saying to a thousand, I don't think it'll go down to a thousand, but people are saying it could go down to a thousand. Well, then you could have lost 50% of it. So you have to make that decision. How much of it do I keep in crypto? It could be a hundred percent none. Just every time you get paid in crypto, you instantly cash it out and you are not using crypto for its store of wealth component. You are just using it as a unit of measure and a medium of exchange. And this comes back to, like I said, it's just volatility risk. So on the whole, the system is very stable and robust. At the individual level, you can be vulnerable if you're not paying attention. If you're paying attention, you will be fine. But I encourage people before they throw their business into this, go try it out personally first. Go get a normal Coinbase account or any of these other, get on any of these other exchanges buy small levels and see what the process is like of paying and receiving and moving funds around and watching it day to day. Don't just be like, we're going to do crypto and tomorrow you've got a wallet and a QR code and you really don't know what you're doing. 
You know, this is absolutely fascinating. We could probably talk for about another 17 hours and just the questions would keep rolling out of my head. I want to thank you for taking the time today. I have had the pleasure of having a conversation with Professor of Economics and the CEO of Imperatus, Luciano Pesci. Luciano, thank you so much for taking the time. And I'm going to go out on a limb right now and say I am anticipating the next opportunity that I have to have another conversation with you. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, go to marketscale.com slash industries. And if you have a chance, subscribe to the MarketScale publications for the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries.